1: NASDAQ down for the week. Rates continue to rise across the curve. Will the rotation from growth to value continue? We discuss these topics today with Ed Harrison and Jack Farley. It's been an eventful week. Uh, let's run through what you guys are thinking. Ed, let's start off with you. What's on your mind? Yeah, as you could probably imagine, I'm thinking about the bonds,
2: uh, credit markets leading. I think uh, the way I'm looking at it is that credit is leading the market and all the other markets are following as a result of that. Uh, The most interesting thing for me is just going back two weeks to uh, that Thursday when I was talking to Katie Stockton, who said that that tomorrow, the next day, we would have a price signal uh, um, where two Friday consecutive. Fridays above a 114.25 level, I think it was that she gave us, would mean that we were breaking resistance at that level, and the next stop was 150. And interestingly enough, uh, here we are, just below the 150 mark. We actually shot above yesterday, and uh, we're meeting resistance at 150. It was a really steep move in rates. I think that we were well extended, and so obviously, you would expect a pullback, but According to the technicals, this is the area of resistance that we should expect. So we might be lingering here for a while. Uh, so potentially,
1: if uh, the rate move is over, perhaps next week will be a calmer week. Yeah. So obviously, uh, the curve steepening on the 10. Same thing happening on the 30, and also a little bit of uh, of some juice happening at the front end of the curve, the two year. Yield, Jack. I know you've been watching the rate uh, situation as well. What's on your mind?
3: Yeah, I think the magnitude of this move uh, really can't be overstated, Ash, especially with regards to how quickly it happened. You know, I listened uh, to Jim Bianco and Ed's interview on RVDB yesterday, and I was titling it, and I came up with the title uh, "Stocks Follow Bonds into the Slaughterhouse," and then I, I said, you know. That's a little bit too dramatic. At Real Vision, we don't we don't like to dramatize things. We you know, but then sometimes when the move is this big, you really have to give people a sense of uh, just how colossal the move is. I mean, it's it's caused obviously a tremendous rotation from growth into value with your high flying tech stocks and the like selling off massively uh, at least over the past four days. Today we had a little bit of a, of a comeback in those names um, but it's it's causing a huge rotation and it's really shifting market dynamics in a big way and uh, I want I want to talk about them uh, for the next uh, half hour or so
1: yeah come back in those stocks but still off for the week as we film here uh, a little after 3 p.m on Friday you know and this reminds me of a conversation that you and I had uh, several times uh, over the last year which is one of duration uh, on these bonds and also about low base effects and percentage change.
2: Yeah, I, I've been saying for a long time, the that move that, that's happening now would happen. You know, I wrote something in uh, Credit Write Downs back in August about uh, momentum stocks being a version of a long duration play, and that obviously, if we had a tick up in yields, exactly what we're seeing would happen. What I find the most interesting, actually, there are two things I find interesting. One is that uh, we have this rotation effect that Jack was talking about. So you rotate it from growth to value or value to growth based upon what's happening. The yields have gone up so much that we've had a massive rotation. And then as yields backed off a little bit, we've seen a rotation back. To me, that sounds like it, that we have algorithmic trading that is doing something based upon uh, you know what where the yields are. Second thing that I would note in terms of yields is a great chart that uh, Ola Hansen from the Saxo Bank put up. It's about it's gold versus the US 10-year real yield. And a lot of people, you know, they always talk about gold, what does gold do, how does it trade? Basically, this chart is telling you that for the last year and a half, last 2 years, it's been a a real yield uh, play. That gold is really about real yields. That is that gold, it doesn't yield anything. And so you're giving up yield by holding gold. And so when you have monetary repression, uh, what happens with negative real yields is gold is more attractive. This chart uh, here, it shows gold and the US 10-year real yield in lockstep. That means that when the real yield goes down, gold goes up. And recently, between, I would say, October and this recent rally there's been a a divergence there that is 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 that the real yield has stayed relatively low and gold has sold off that has all caught up in a hurry we're now back on track where gold and the real yield are tracking together so i think that that's another story behind what's happening in in terms
1: of the rates yeah, and of course, worth pointing out, this is true of real yields, but not nominal yields. Nominal yields can spike dramatically, and gold can rise uh, as a consequence.
2: Yeah, and you know, interestingly, if you look at this chart, the 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 uh, the red part of the chart is the one that is uh, the uh, real yield part, the ten-year real yield, and you can see that real yields are going up massively uh, with this spike. The question is: Is what kind of base effects are we going to get with regard to inflation? Because right. we know uh, that with the lockdowns a year or so ago, uh, you know, it's going to have some impact. I suspect that real yields will continue to be relatively good, uh, and so that will put pressure on gold for some time to come. We'll see what happens once we we get the base effects of uh, you know the post. March, April timeframe.
1: Yeah.
3: Jack, thoughts? Huh. Uh, well, I actually, so I can't see the chart that Ed's talking about, but I can sort of see it in my head. And the relationship between gold and real rates is, I think, one of the most pivotal in finance. Uh, I've got another one on my screen, which is the monthly change in gold. Uh, so this month, February, uh, gold has actually had the worst month uh, since late 2016. So uh, you know, in the same way that these rising yields have been kryptonite for tech, um, because they, uh, you know, it's caused a massive sell-off in gold uh, as well.
1: Yeah, and with tech, it's important to point out some of the mechanics of why this is happening. So, uh, when you have very low rates, uh, you're able to discount cash flows on growth stocks in a much more favorable way. And when those rates begin to rise, uh, it begins to put pressure on growth stocks. And you see this rotation uh, into cyclical stocks, uh, which is something that we see. It happens. It bounces back and forth. There's this kind of flirtation uh, in both directions. Uh, And it's interesting to see where that is going to land, ultimately. And it seems to be, uh, to your point, Ed, and to your point, Jack, uh, ultimately very dependent upon rates, because that's where the sensitivity. Is.
2: Yeah, and so uh, when Jack was pointing out the rapidity w- with which rates went up, I think that that's the interesting part of it. Even though you had a rotation, you also had a sell-off at the same time. You don't necessarily have to have a sell-off. Uh, you could have a rotation into certain uh, stylistic factors, you know, a growth over value or value over growth, without any sort of impact overall. But what we saw is that rates went up so aggressively that we saw a sell off, and it was more of a sell off for the growthiest names uh, because those are the ones, as you were saying, Ash, are the most
1: vulnerable given the discount rates. Yeah, and if you're looking for a quick back of the envelope way of thinking about rising rates. Typically, it's one of two cases. Either you see real growth expectations rising, or you see inflation rising. It's a really interesting time because we seem to have some commodity price inflation right now, and also expectation of what's going to happen to growth when the economy reopens. Obviously, we're getting some very positive data uh, with COVID right now. The disease seems to be under control. It seems to be moving under control, might be a better way to say it. Obviously, there are, are still far too many people Getting Ill, uh, but the expectation is that as we see the cases decline, as we see the number of people who are getting the vaccine rise, that we're going to have a reopening of the economy. So, Ed, how do you think about that? How do you balance out those two different definitions or those two different ways uh, of getting rising rates? I'm thinking about nominal GDP growth
2: and nominal yields going up in lockstep. So, as nominal GDP growth increases then you should see a concomitant increase in nominal yields. The real question is the real versus the inflation part of it. And and that's where the impact on stocks and on other asset classes comes into play, because you can get a lot of that juice via inflation, or you can get a lot of it via real GDP growth, i.e. real growth. So. The jury's still out for me. I'm not a big inflation guy. Uh, I do think that the risk of inflation is as high as it's been. Uh, and given some of the numbers that we've seen for Q1, it. it uh, and we also had this stimulus of $1.9 trillion, that's definitely going to happen. I believe it was today that they said that they were going to end up passing it. Uh, right. That's going to be giving people stimulus checks. Uh, we saw that real income went up like 10% in uh, in the last month. So you, you have a lot of money sloshing about that definitely gives you the possibility of having at least a step change in price levels. That's not inflation, it's just a step change in, in price levels. So for me, the jury's still out as to whether it's real GDP growth or whether it
1: is inflation. Yeah, it's really such a complicated thing, especially when you see the very sharp decrease that we did uh, around COVID, because you have this sliding window. So you have the old data falling out, which shows the great drops. And the rises uh, may be something more akin to coming back to a baseline of growth uh, from where we were. So there are a lot of variables that, uh, that exist here. And it's definitely a complicated time to sort through this.
2: You know, uh, I don't want to get in front of Jack here, because uh, he has some things that he wants to talk about in the credit markets as well. Uh, but w- there was another chart I saw in terms of credit that was interesting. It was the uh, option-adjusted spread, you know, the high-yield spread to Treasuries. Uh, and you could see, if you look at that chart, just it's just showing the part that is in the recession during the lockdown period and beyond. And you can see that it's going way up the uh, the spread, and then it came down. And we're now at a level where we were before the the crisis began. And interestingly, if you look, there's really no impact whatsoever from the tick up in real yields, uh, or and also the tick up in nominal yields on the spread. So even though yields are going up spreads in high yield aren't going up. so what it's telling you is is that there's no distress there's no liquidity problems that have seeped into high yield as a result of the uh, uptick in, in yields that we've seen. so overall what that it says is that's bullish it's bullish for risk assets it's telling you that the, the, the sky is, is, is blue and you know you can
1: continue to go forward. I guess a cynic uh, might point out uh, that look, you know, the Fed balance sheet expands to seven and a half trillion dollars. You've got fiscal stimulus coming out of Congress, as you point out, voting today in the House on 1.9 trillion in additional stimulus, and then, of course, more specifically to the high yield situation, we have the so-called 13-3 programs out of the New York Fed uh, that are providing liquidity for those markets. So again. One of the paradoxes that comes up, again, kind of the, the real or nominal, uh, is this stimulus or is it demand? Yeah, uh,
2: it, it doesn't really make a difference, does it? Uh, Jack, you were going to say something, weren't
1: you? <laughs> yes. That's the most cynical answer to a cynical question I've ever heard, Ed. <laughs> does it matter?
3: Um yeah, so so Ed, I'm curious. You mentioned that high yield spreads didn't budge that much, but that's the spread relative to the treasury, not the actual yield itself. So if that's true, that would be mean that actual yields did rise alongside treasuries. Would, would that be right?
2: Exactly, that's exactly right. They did rise, and you know, my expectation would be that. Uh, Eventually, there's enough pain as a result of a rise in treasuries that not only would the rates themselves rise in lockstep, that the spreads would would rise as well. But we haven't seen that, and it suggests to me that we still have abundant amounts of liquidity
1: in that market. You get to yeah. break out the great Latin phrase peri passu."
3: Absolutely, uh, yeah. So Ed, you talked about high yield. Uh, I think of high yield as typically having a maturity that's shorter than investment grade, because I'm looking at the, uh, the yields of the uh, investment grade uh, 10-year Treasury plus the average investment grade bond spread, and it's absolutely getting slammed going from about 1% in January to now just under 2.3%. And you're seeing this uh, cause ripples all across the fixed income spectrum. For example, and this is something, Ed, I know you've talked with David Rosenberg, how you know back in the old days of, let's say, two years ago, when yields were so low, uh, people who they couldn't invest in high yield, what they did, they invested in extremely long duration bonds. So, you know, an Apple... Uh, bond that's due in 2061, a CVS bond that's due in 2050. Well, all those bonds are, or the type of those bonds, those are in LQD, which is the, the ETF for uh, liquid investment grade debt. And that's down uh, almost 7% just this year. Meanwhile, Treasurys uh, TLT is down uh, a similar number this year. And by the way, I think the, I read the short interest on LQD went from about 6% to now over 20%. So people are no longer just short bonds. They're, they're shorting, uh, or short, shorting treasury bonds. They're now shorting LQD as well. Um, so what I want to know is, yeah, what's going to happen to the high yield market? And what's going to happen to the leveraged loan market where the duration is typically shorter? So it's thought to be a protection against that interest rate risk. What I'm seeing now is that the market's saying credit risk doesn't really matter. What, what we are afraid of is interest rate risk.
2: Yeah, I, I haven't seen anything that says that credit risk matters yet. Uh, you know, I don't see these spreads as being uh, indicative of people having problems with the credit situation. There's abundant liquidity. And so for me, since credit leads the cycle, it would suggest that we still have upside. Uh, we could consolidate and then uh, move higher as a result. And ultimately, when you have so much money in the pipeline from stimulus, you know, going back to Ash's original question, uh, th- it's very hard to think that you're going to get a durable sell-off, either in credit or in equities, uh, w- because the-, the market is raging ahead. Uh, we're talking 7% uh, real GDP growth, potentially, for the entirety of 2021. I mean, we haven't seen numbers like that in at least uh, 40 years.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com.
1: Yeah, and that looks probably like a rebound effect, uh, from some of this, the uh, declines we saw is a consequence of COVID. So obviously, we see right now. Uh, we were talking a little earlier about commodity price inflation. CRB index up, lumber, uh, copper rising very uh, rapidly. But let me throw out an alternate view from someone uh, whose opinion matters a little bit more than yours and mine and uh, everyone on this call. Jay Powell saying we're a long way from our employment goals uh, and we're a long way from our inflation goals. We are still not able. To attain two percent,
3: I think that uh, um, that the the uh, Fed Chair Powell is correct in that just because you know crude oil was up eighteen percent over the past month, uh, copper up fifteen percent, lumber up a ton, that doesn't mean that that is uh, true inflation. It can be uh, su- supply uh, chain constraints. Um, we saw that in in Texas where. Uh those shutdowns uh, uh, um, shut down 40% of the production of crude oil. So, you know, if you're looking at the production, that doesn't mean that it's uh, inflation. And then on the jobs market, which which Ed knows a lot uh, more about that than I do, but uh, you know, w- typically when you have so many people unemployed, that that's not uh, a sign that inflation is going to pick up anytime soon.
1: Yeah, I see what you did there with that ton of lumber pun, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> Accidental, I assure you. <laughs> Uh, you know, to talk, about, uh, to talk about jobs, you know, it's interesting. I've been spending more time focusing on the digital assets, crypto markets, and uh, I'm probably less read into the daily news cycle uh, on capital markets. But interestingly, it's given me kind of a different perspective because I'm not following the day-to-day gyrations. I'm thinking a little bit more big picture. And for me, if you want a single chart uh, that talks about where the real economy is right now, it's this chart. On jobs, And when you look at this chart, what you see is what we've been talking about here uh, on Real Vision Daily Briefing for over a year now, the inverse radical recovery. You see that number steadily rising from left to right, uh, and then you see the very steep drop, and you see a sharp V-shaped recovery, but a V-shaped recovery that doesn't get you up to where you were at the time the crisis started. Now, the important point to think about, when you look at that chart, you'd have to extrapolate that slope from where we were on the left uh, to figure out where we should be at a natural of growth that's been in place uh, for a decade now. We are still far, far below that. That means that real people in the real economy are suffering as asset prices rise.
2: Yeah, and you know, actually, interestingly, I was thinking about that from the perspective of GDP. Um, I haven't looked at the numbers, but if we get a seven percent real GDP growth uh, level, that would suggest that by the end of two thousand twenty-one, we'll be at the same level or higher than we were when we went into the COVID crisis. So what it says is is that there's more GDP, more economy. Uh, at the end of 2021, than there was in March of 2020. And if you have this reverse radical, not getting you back to where you were on a jobs perspective, that's implicitly telling you that there that the, the, it's a winner take all type of uh, economy. You know, the K-shaped right. recovery where some people are not benefiting and other people are benefiting to excess. And they're the ones who are creating
1: the the uh, the extra GDP and and reaping the benefits of that that's exactly right. And that's the nightmare scenario. GDP, of course, c plus g plus i plus n x. And if that the labor share of that is decreasing, what you could see is a dramatic shift, basically, from labor to capital. And that is a very bad thing. Uh, for at least two reasons. Uh, One, because it means that real people, real wage earners can suffer dramatically, which is probably the most important point. But the second is there's this difference between marginal propensity to save uh, and marginal propensity to consume. The higher the income individuals earn, uh, the more likely they are to invest or save that money. uh, And the less they earn, the more likely they are to go back into the economy and spend it on goods and services. That has a dramatic increase in demand, uh, which is six, 66% 66% of the US economy, roughly two-thirds. So when you think about this, it could be something that could be very difficult if these trends continue. Absolutely.
3: Yeah,
2: and when you talk about the investment side, obviously, uh, it all depends on where uh, the investments are. I mean, it's not like people are investing in, in, uh, in brick and mortar retail. They're investing in things that are relatively speculative at this point in time. So that's something
1: also to be concerned about. Yeah. They're also investing in technology. If you think about the NASDAQ, all those technologies are almost by definition labor saving uh, and capital intensive. And that just increases this disparity, uh, the imbalance in the economy. Jack, you were gonna say
3: Um Yes. Well, I was gonna say, at, about a minute ago, you said two things are true. And uh I was going to turn it back on you both and say, um, how does that react? I mean, it was about the marginal per- propensity to spend. I was going to say, um, what what do you think of the, uh, the the failure to pass or to include in the mo- most recent stimulus bill, um, the fifteen dollar minimum wage? Because you know, if you think of the low wa- minimum wage workers, those are the people who, out of all workers, have the highest propensity to spend. So you put a dollar in their hands, that the most of that dollar is going to reroute itself to the economy, um, as opposed to you know. Uh, a billionaire who's just going to, to invest it in the treasury bond or something like that. Um, so what did uh, what did you make of uh, the fact that the $15 minimum wage did not get in the stimulus bill?
1: It's a great question. So in terms of the economics, there are two schools of thought on this. Uh, The first is precisely the point that you made. Uh, And the flip side is uh, that if you increase the minimum wage, uh, what you're doing is you're going to price a lot of workers out of the market, and you're actually going to increase unemployment. I think there's some validity to this. It actually follows kind of a curve. The question is one of levels. And if you think about the federal minimum wage today, by the way, states have their own minimum wages that are generally higher. In fact, they must be higher by definition than the federal minimum wage. But the current federal minimum wage uh, is seven and a quarter dollars an hour. 15 obviously, more than double 7.25. So the question is, when you make that swing very dramatically, uh, does it have an impact on the lowest wage and most vulnerable workers that actually ends up pricing them out of the market, and might it have deleterious effects? I think that may be some of the thinking uh, behind why it didn't find the support uh, that it needed to pass uh, in, in Congress.
2: Yeah, you know, my view, I guess, uh, it, it's also somewhat nuanced. I'll, I'll say this, that I'm probably from Gen X, uh, and we're, we're much more sort of uh, market-oriented and uh, look askance uh, at uh, some of these policies, which are much more uh, heavy-handed. People might, might use the term socialist. Uh, I, I think that that's a generational divide. I think that people who are in the younger generation are sort of fed up with the status quo, and they want to get at a solution no matter how they achieve it and I'm somewhat skeptical about being able to achieve it with a blunt instrument like a $15 minimum wage. But having said that, you know studies have not shown that marginal increases in minimum wages or in wage levels actually do put people out of work. Uh, study the meta studies that they've shown, it does, as you were saying, Ash, depend on how much uh, you're going. So if you are in Arkansas, and there's uh, you know, a lot more people who are making closer to minimum wage, and you jack the rate up to $15 an hour, that's going to be a problem, versus in San Francisco, I right. think it will probably be less of a problem. So in that sense, you could create those kinds of uh, externalities. For me, uh, Joel Greenblatt, his solution I think was an interesting one, which is the uh, uh, earn minimum tax credit. I believe he said he basically said, you know, uh, let people get the, the the amount of wage that they can get, and have the government make up the difference in some capacity. Don't set the minimum wage on the on the company. Do it in some capacity so that the the wage earner gets the money but
1: uh you know it's not causing excess unemployment yeah that's extremely well said ed and and very nuanced and you know i think you're absolutely right it's totally dependent on level i you know personally wouldn't want to live in an America uh, where people make 75 cents an hour uh, just because uh, the the poor person needs to work for that wage that would be a terrible thing conversely if you want to come up with the absurd proposition on the opposite side of the equation uh, we can't just uh, all vote ourselves uh, into being millionaires by having a thousand dollar minimum wage so the question is really uh, where do these balances fall and I think that's exactly right it is an incredibly uh, difficult trade-off in balancing act. And, and also, the, the regional differences are significant, uh, which makes it very challenging for such a blunt tool uh, to kind of be a to be a panacea that solves all of our problems.
3: The comment uh, occurred to me that I was going to say that I wonder how much it would cost to make the minimum wage something very high, like $50. You know, how much would that cost per month relative to the $120 billion that the Fed is, is plowing into treasuries and mortgage-backed securities? But now I'm going to use that sort of, to, let's dodge that, Question and I, I want to move on, and I want to talk. Move back to the central question, which is the rise in interest rates, and I want to share just my thinking about it. I, I think of interest rates sort of like uh, financial gravity. That when they're so low, these uh, tech stocks can get can fly very high because they, they are so focused on growth that their cash flows dated out to 20, uh, 2040 they matter a great deal. And it's about how quickly they can grow. Present isn't so important. But as interest rates rise, simply put, the future isn't worth what it used to be. And then uh, all those high-flying tech stocks, they the gravity increases and they get to slow down. So we saw that in Tesla. We saw that in Roku. We saw that in Square, in Teladoc, Spotify, Shopify, all these growth names. And by the way, I might add, those were the um, top holdings in the ARK uh, Innovation ETF. And that uh, ETF uh, is is down something like 30% just this week. And I've got a chart of the outflows uh, people are uh, really uh, fleeing this ETF. And as uh, money flows out of the ETF, uh, they have to sell to, They have to sell their, sell their underlying holdings in order to meet those redemptions. And uh, that's something that Jared uh, Dillion talks about on Wednesday. He's got a, a background. He used to work in, in ETFs. Um, I, I don't want to uh, sort of paint a doomsday scenario. I don't think the Arc Innovation ETF is going to go bust. But, you know, if, if decreasing interest rates is good for tech stocks, and that's been the, uh, the, the the you know what they've been uh, att- attaching their hook to as, as they go up then as they as interest rates increase tech stocks have to go down and I think even looking at implied volatility in these stocks names like just like Tesla which is something that I was following pretty closely this week um, the implied volatility is much much higher so the options are much much more expensive re- even relative to the price de- decrease so uh, market participants are, are uh, pricing in that there could be a lot more volatility, and but perhaps to the downside.
1: Jack, I love yeah. that metaphor of financial gravity. So the question to you, Ed, is: What happens if we go from living on Mercury to living on Jupiter?
2: Yeah, I mean, the real question is: It goes back to, to uh, the beginning of the conversation. Are we just going to consolidate at one fifty and go back to a normal world, or? Uh, and this is what J.P. Morgan thinks, by the way. I was reading a, uh, you know, the J.P. Morgan view. Uh, they think that, uh, let's see, that in terms of the volatility, that the end of easy money will be a regime shift. But in our view, it will it will be a protracted, multi-phase one involving a tapering announcement and a pause before first hike. And so they think that you know we're uh, mostly at the end of this volatility. Or, or, or rather, the the uptick in in yields. Uh, let's see. That's that's the that's the sixty four thousand dollar question. We're at the one fifty level or thereabouts right now. Um, where are we
1: going to be in a month's time? I think that's uh, where the proof is in the pudding. That sounds like a masterpiece of sell side research. One of those things where the answer is so complicated that you can claim partial victory in just about every scenario.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Ash, that's what a fund manager does. If something goes up, is uh, they sell half of it, so that if it goes down, they feel like they were smart for selling it, and if it goes up, they feel smart for for still owning it. But uh, Ash, I actually really like your metaphor um, of going from Venus to Jupiter. And I actually know because I'm a little bit of a sci-fi nerd. I've read a few books about uh, you know people people living on Mars, and the gravity there is is sufficiently light that. Uh, once you live on Mars for a long time, you really can 't go back to Earth because your your bones just get too weak and your muscles just get too weak. So the question is these high these growth stocks have they become too weak in this in this low uh, growth environment
1: if there 's anything nerdier than talking about finance it 's talking about finance with sci fi metaphors yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so as we get uh, near the conclusion here, I'm curious to get your final thoughts. Uh Jack, what are you thinking about as you look forward into next week?
3: Um well Ash, uh, to just sort of flip it back to you, um Bitcoin has been a tremendously uh, uh lucrative asset to own over the past year. Uh this week though, I think we had the the worst drawdown since uh March of, of last year. And specifically, um, this is I know something that you've been following, Ash, because you're in this world, but also Ed has been following, is uh, uh, the grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which I, I full disclosure I own that, and I also own some Bitcoin on the side. Um, but uh, they, uh, they, they, they um, you know, traded at a significant premium to net asset value or NAV because there were institutional investors. The reasoning went, uh, who wanted to buy Bitcoin, but they couldn't own Bitcoin because their trusts, uh, you know, their, their, their bylaws said that they couldn't. So they they, they bought. Uh, Grayscale, or they bought MicroStrategy, something that they could actually put in their their portfolio. Um, So that's why GPTC traded at a premium. But now, if you look, uh, it's actually trading at a 3.7% discount. So that's something that I've got on my radar.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lipson Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
2: Yeah. And actually, he, he, he stole my thunder ass. That's what uh, I was going to say. Exactly that. And uh, the, it goes back to you.
1: You, uh, the questioner, become the question. Uh, how, how are you thinking about it? Well, I'll take the first one uh, first, the drawdown. So I'm looking at a chart here, a one month chart on Bitcoin. So Bitcoin rolls from 32,000 uh, to uh, almost 58,000. Uh, and then it comes down uh, to 47,000. You go, oh no, the drawdown has been terrible. I mean, yes, as a mathematical proposition, the drawdown uh, for that time period, that window has been relatively high. But look, it, it's been on an absolute tear. Um, I think to me, and I've said this before, the day-to-day gyrations and the price of Bitcoin are the least interesting aspect of the crypto market. Now, obviously, we cover it uh, because lots of people are uh, investing and trading in a relatively short time horizon, it. But to me, that's not the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. In terms of uh, the the grayscale Bitcoin Trust, I should probably say I own a very small position of GBTC myself. Um, not that I'm going to move the price by talking about it, but it is. I did something that I own in a very small quantity. Look, you know that product. Uh, was, I think, perhaps something that was very much uh, of a specific era. The closed-end fund, uh, when institutions wanted to get in, they wanted to get exposure, uh, they weren't yet comfortable on the custody side uh, with the asset itself, uh, and they were looking for a mechanism to do it. Obviously, as you point out, Jack, correctly, uh, the variability between the net asset value and the current market price uh, often traded at a very large premium. Now, we're seeing that unwind. We're seeing the reverse. We're seeing it trade as a discount it seems to me to be something that was very much a product of its time. There are two major changes that are happening right now. Uh, Number one, uh, global custody solutions uh, for retail investors and institutional investors have increased dramatically. Uh, Next week, uh, next Tuesday, I have Anthony Scaramucci on the podcast, Ground Floor Consensus. He talks about the fund that he spun up, uh, and he talks about what he needed to come into the space. He's very much an institutionalist. He was a bit skeptical uh, of investing client funds in it early on in the game, and what made him comfortable was Fidelity, that's uh, his custodian on it, because one, they have a massive balance sheet, and two, they have insurance from Lloyds of London uh, to protect against potential loss. So that's one side of the equation. The other side uh, is ETFs. Now, we don't currently have a US-regulated ETF, uh, but we've got one in Canada. Uh, regulators down under in Australia uh, are talking about allowing ETFs for Bitcoin. It seems like it's a matter of time before an ETF is available for US uh, retail investors that can be easily accumulated. Uh, it seems to me that that's going to be the direction that we're going in. And I think that perhaps some of the closed end fund products uh, may get a lower market capitalization as a consequence. This, you know, very much a natural progression in my view of the development of the market.
2: Absolutely. So you're not at all concerned that uh, Grayscale has uh, the, the the net asset value is below the the value of Bitcoin that they hold before these things have come to fruition. There there are no ETFs in the U.S. and this right. is already happening.
1: Well, my position is small enough that it's not going to have an impact on my life, uh, and I think that uh, Digital Currency Group is going to do fine uh, no matter what. Uh, I, look, I just think it's a natural uh, balancing act. I expect it'll probably come back uh, on, a, on a percentage basis between, uh, between that asset value and, uh, and, the, and, the, and the current price, uh, but it, it's not something that I, I'm especially concerned about. I don't think it impacts the space most importantly, right? Like I just I don't think that uh, that this slight skew uh, is going to change any of the fundamental dynamics. It's very clear if you look at this, in my view at least, over a long time horizon. If you look at it today and where we find ourselves in uh, 2031, uh, the direction for adoption of digital assets is just going to continue to increase.
3: Yeah, Ash, you know, uh, so you are a veteran in the crypto space and you really know a lot of that about it. So because of that. You aren't really excited about the price action you're much more interested in the technology um, but I you know I am a a novice in the space I'm a tyro so it actually the price action actually is sort of my way um. My my entry point into crypto, um, and I might add about the the um, uh, net asset values. There's also a grayscale Ethereum trust, which I think last summer was trading about 600 percent of a premium to net asset value. So uh, this this really is a, a very interesting moment. Ash, I'm very much looking forward to your your interview on Ground Floor Consensus with Anthony Scaramucci um, yeah. as we close. And and I, I, since, since you plugged, I might say that there's a great masterclass with Brent Johnson today. Um, on the plus tier interviewed by Jason Buck. And um, then it doesn't end there on next Monday, or you know, on, on Monday, um, Rao's gonna be speaking to Jim Rogers who shares his outlook on what we've been talking about, rising rates, inflation, commodities. He also shares his outlook on, uh, his, his memories of 1987 uh, Black Monday, where uh-huh. Dow Jones crashed a tremendous amount. Uh, Jim tells Rao that he was actually short the market and that Black Monday occurred on his birthday so that he got quite a birthday present.
2: <laughs> so you've seen the interview already so you know
1: what they what they talked about. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, nice. Yeah, great. Hey Jack, let me just say if, if the if the price action on uh, Bitcoin isn't sufficient for you, uh, I'm looking right now at February 27, 2020 price 8800 bucks. Current trade last trade about 47,000.
3: That's a good point Ash. <laughs> that is, you, they still are uh, have made a lot of money. What is that? Like
1: 6x? Something like that. Not bad. Ed, Jack, thanks for joining us.
2: Have a great weekend, everyone.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad.